Imagine being in great positioning to grow your business and from out of nowhere, the foundation of your world is ripped from under you like a sinkhole. What would you do? Today, we're going to hear a story about how a small minority-owned business navigated their way through some very tough times during the pandemic by learning how to reposition themselves for growth against the odds. Welcome to Unveiled GovCon Stories, where we explore the experiences and we share the stories of small businesses in government contracting to spotlight the often sugar-coated and avoided discussions that speak to the reality of doing business within the U.S. public sector as a small business. On this episode, we are joined by Soka Kim, president and founder of Zen Solutions, a small GovCon business based in the D.C. metropolitan area, providing technical solutions with specialized capabilities and network and infrastructure support, electronic discovery consultation, systems engineering, and enterprise architecture. Soka is a highly proficient technologist with 25 years of IT experience and over 30 industry certifications. He has a master's degree in information technology with a concentration in information security founded on CISSP principles. Just as many entrepreneurs, he wears many hats from day to day, doing HR, administrative tasks, business development and recruiting efforts, as well as being billable on contracts. He sets himself apart by leveraging a foundation of hands-on engineering to develop and solution and migrate systems to virtual or cloud infrastructures, creating value for partners and clients, and harnesses lessons learned as, battle test, as a battle-tested leader to build and motivate high-performing teams to deploy the best in technical solutions and services for critical business and mission needs. Fun facts, Soka holds two black belts in different martial arts. He enjoys a good whiskey or craft beer as a nightcap. He cuts it up on the dance floor, but he can't tolerate dairy. He has a beautiful wife that also tolerates his shenanigans and supports his entrepreneur ambitions, as well as enjoys making his two young sons giggle on cue. He's often seen smiling, and if he's not, he's either in deep thought or in need of fiber in his life. Soka, thank you so much for being brave, pulling back the curtain and sharing your GovCon story with us. Thanks for having me, Tasha. Great introduction. I, I really appreciate the, the warm welcome. Uh, good meeting you too, Yaz. Um, this is definitely uh, something I've been looking forward to and uh, hope to crack it open and, and you know, at least hit things at a, at a high level and with broad strokes and uh, captivate the audience with some compelling points about GovCon and the pitfalls and the woes and the whys, all that good stuff. That's fantastic. We appreciate you joining as well. Um, I'm going to kick off the session uh, today with a couple questions. Um, let's start with your GovCon story. Um, give us your background. How did you get started in this space? Where, What motivated you? I mean, everybody's got a different story. We'd love to hear yours. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll, I'll take it back as far as you'll let me, but um, I, I'd like <laughs> to give you a little uh, personal context. Uh, context, the IT background, it, you know, I've always been a consummate technologist from early days of, of um, college. So I've been doing this for, uh, I've been learning to say over 20 years, because, you know, when, when you're getting over 25, you start aging yourself a bit in the field. But, <laughs> you know, I got started with a vital hands-on uh, foundation in IT infrastructure and uh, hardware um, spanning from commercial and eventually uh, getting into enterprise and government programs. So I did that for the first 15 years or so. Um, and then I stepped more into GovCon, uh, went all in, and, and we'll get to some of that. 
some personal context, uh, first generation immigrant from Cambodia, Southeast Asia, uh, grew up in a small uh, town called Charlotte, North Carolina, who, uh, uh, you know, which is a city where I recall as a small and charming Southern town. Uh, <laughs> but nowadays it's, it's a sprawling city. It's grown tremendously richer with diversity uh, since then. When I arrived, I was fairly young, spoke very little English, um, if any, and um, I think I was met with a lot of adversity from the start. So I grew up watching my parents hold down at least two jobs each, probably became naturalized citizens as well as myself, came here for all the same reasons, right? We yearned for that American dream, and we learned quickly uh, for minorities it, it isn't always so easy. It's uh, a bit of a struggle to get started. You're you're already met with some capital setbacks, right? You got to raise the capital to start the business. And it's not like you have anyone to, to lend you the money personally outright. So yeah, my origin story kind of starts there from uh, these humble beginnings. And I'm blessed to, to be with, here, uh, with you here today in uh, so many ways. Um, so we'll get, get into some of the background, uh, which led me to where I'm at in my career from an IT professional. Um, and then we'll we'll dive into the GovCon, if, if you'd like. I attended NC State for a few years, up to the point where my family couldn't support the rising costs of the traditional college. Father get My father got pretty ill, uh, had to seek out a technical trade college, which later offered the opportunity to get to work sooner and, and help out start pitching in sooner. Trade college is, is a nice alternative. I, I'd go ahead and throw that out there for anyone, you know, thinking that traditional college is the only route. It actually eventually offered me uh, an internship and uh, the trade college gave me a full-time job right as the dot-com bubble uh, bursted around early 2000. So I, I, that's when I graduated, and luckily they, they offered me a soft landing pad at a new campus. It also afforded me the opportunity to continue with my education nights and weekends. I hit the ground running, moved to Greenville, South Carolina to start that career. I had to mentor other interns, kind of paying it forward with those that showed the aptitude and drive, you know, willingness to learn. We brought them on as interns. We didn't pay much. It was always close to minimum wage. But what we offered was unparalleled hands-on experience. We did everything from cabling to the networking, you know, the servers, workstations, Active Directory, the whole gamut. And everyone that graduated ended up getting great jobs in the commercial field. So that's kind of how I started. I should point out most of those interns were actually older than me, had a lot more life experience, usually on their second leg, second career. It was an interesting moment for me. I was still in my early 20s, right? How do I, quote unquote, manage these folks without, you know, really having any kind of supervisory experience? But what I learned was building that common ground, finding some some common plane to to find some space to to be peers and be able to communicate first, and then opening it up so that I could teach them some IT skills and. And vice versa, I learned a, a lot of life skills along the way from, from these folks. So it, um, all of them, I, I'd say that they're they're still friends. And that kind of paved the way on how I would approach all 
lead positions or managerial positions and kind of set the stepping stone there. And I'll pause there a little bit because this kind of leads into 2004, where I decided to move to DC and, and start the, the GovCon experience and enterprise level experience. Yeah, so I know that you got started as a consultant. I myself did the same thing and, and I'm still in that process of transitioning to moving from beyond the lifestyle business to a fully structured company with employees and responsibility. And so I'm curious, what influenced you to fully commit and go all in like as a government contractor versus remaining a consultant? It's a great question. Yeah, so moving to DC it afforded me the opportunity to to work on some fairly unique and, and large scale enterprise GovCon opportunities like Active Directory migrations, Exchange migrations, twenty to fifty thousand users plus. So that really it was something that I always wanted to do, and what I've worked so hard in terms of um, degrees and certifications towards, right? So from 2004 to roughly 2013, I found myself working in mid-sized to large companies, supporting GovCon and enterprise clients. Eventually did, did launch my own business, Zen Solutions, in 2005 and did solopreneuring 1099 type work within that, that uh, time frame. You know, I, leading up to then, um, I, I was doing pretty well in, in my career and uh, being 1099, you know, you can kind of pick and choose what types of programs you're going to work with. Um, and I had a, a big inflection point around 2013, 2014. Late 2014, I had a, a health scare and was met with a, a realization that I, I was going to have to address this full on, take some time off of work and and go through treatment. Uh, the treatment would last three to six months, pretty aggressive, and it caused me to pause and, and realize, hey, as a solopreneur, I've been really taking the bare minimum health benefits and, and not really thinking about savings 401k and all those things that you you would really think about. Um, I was still fairly young and, and experienced in that respect, right? So I quickly exhausted all of, our, uh, all of my savings. And luckily, there was a good support group around me, friends and family pulled together to start a GoFundMe, and uh, they, they carried me through those six months and got me back on my feet. But that was the realization at that point that I needed to at least think about professionally and financially. I didn't have enough support systems in place at that time. Mm -hmm. And when I had to take that pause from billable work for treatment, and the part-time transition, it wrecked my world, right? It, it caused a, a lot more grief and panic and anxiety than I, I would have wished on my worst enemy, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it made me realize that there was an opportunity after the, the treatment, after I was able to return to work, I started seizing on every professional and personal opportunity I could, sought to live life to the, the fullest, so to speak, and uh, I was blessed with support, the supportive wife and the two miracle babies after that, and these business opportunities that are, are just growing organically since then, I've, I feel like it's been kismet, fate, destiny, whatever you want to call it. It's all from uh, people helping people, people reaching out, 
recognizing um, the value we bring as IT professionals. And uh, I, I'm sure they're looking at our character and our integrity and a good partner, and, and they want to build on that. So that, that's kind of what launched this, what, what opened me up to wanting to bring on employees and setting up an infrastructure to give benefits like a mid-size or large, but still operate as a small, you know, compensate very well. Being in the field, I know what they make or should be demanding, and I try to give them a little more. So, And that's amazing. And so you went basically from being a consultant to having a, a full-on business after, you know, coming through a major health scare. Yeah. And now things are looking great. You're chumming along and bam, COVID <laughs> hits you in the face, right? Like a sucker punch. So at the onset of the global pandemic, what were your thoughts about how it would impact your business? Like, how did you approach that? Because, you know, a lot of different small businesses approached it different ways. Some immediately pulled back. And, you know, with, with considering the government contracting space, there's some special considerations that you have to take into account um, with any type of transition in operation. So I'm curious about your thoughts about how you thought it would impact your business and how you prep for that. Those are amazing questions. And I think a lot of uh, small businesses uh, definitely handled this uh, a little differently, but we're all faced with the abrupt sucker punch, like you said, where uh, I think everyone was learning as they were going, but it was very fluid in terms of who's billable, who can actually still show up to work. Mm -hmm. um, there was that period with maybe two weeks that everyone was off of work, right? Right. With the, the federal mandates. So that um, definitely hit us in, in the in the in the bank account for sure in terms of cash flow um and government contracting we all know we, we've got a, a at least pad for 30 to 60 days out but you want to actually plan for three to six months out to cover all those liabilities and cash flow but as a small business starting off it takes a few years to really build that cushion and like you said we we're just getting to that point where we're growing enough to to pad it and then we get caught with this so we were scrambling we were really scrambling tr trying to understand what was going on and figure out who on our team was going to be able to remain billable out of that ordeal about 40 percent of our staff was asked to stay home uh, pretty much indefinitely until they figured out what was going on and then some of our senior IT staff were allowed to go on site across a few of our programs and, and be deemed as essential workers. And they would go and, and basically set up the infrastructure so that others could work remotely and be billable and be productive and efficient. So we truly showed our value there. We had uh, across uh, a few contracts, very vital engineers that kind of um, set the precedent for that and set up the infrastructure to support it. So thanks for that information. And I mean, across small businesses um, across the U.S. and across the world, there were huge, huge impacts. Um, as we talk specifically about the GovCon um, industry and the area where we support, um, there were a lot of surveys taking us after the fact that presented some interesting information. Um, one of which, uh, according to a survey by the National Small Business Association, 73% of small businesses reported a decline in revenue 
um, with 40% of those businesses reporting a decline of 50% or more. So that's 73, almost three quarters of the small businesses reporting a decline of 50% of revenue. Um, and that's tough for a small business to sustain. Further complicating matters, small businesses had access issues accessing funding. So not only did you see a decline in your revenue, but from the small business, the National Small Business Association, they found that 42% of the small businesses were unable to even access adequate funding to, to, to keep supporting their business. And 33% of them were unable to access funding at all. So not only were you faced with declining revenue, you had a decline in the ability to access funding. And then on top of that, some businesses that got no funding and in the information, unfortunately, only gets more bleak as you continue to read through some of these surveys and information that's provided online. As a lot of this information was gathered, you know, kind of, I shouldn't say post-pandemic, but a little further down the scale uh, of the pandemic and the event that we've all been faced. And, and some of those metrics around kind of minority-owned businesses and how they were disproportionately impacted with some reaching numbers of, of, of 30% of the minority-owned businesses having to close permanently due to issues with funding. And, you know, for those that are interested, you can find a lot of this information on the National Small Business Association site um, and articles that they help publish, as well as the National Bureau of Economic Research. So for those that just like to dig into the numbers, that's where we get some of this information from as they continue to do surveys and pull information in from kind of the 2019-2020 to, to now. So we also saw in during that time that the Paycheck Protection Program was introduced um, by the U.S. government to help small businesses impacted by COVID. And there, were, there was a lot of information that came out at once and a lot of small businesses moving in that direction just due to a absolute need as we're talking about 50% decline in revenue for, for so many small businesses. And the Small Businesses Administration posted, has posted a lot of information about of what the, the, the loan was intended to do, who it was intended to support, which was, of course, to support small businesses, nonprofits, independent contractors, sole proprietors, that, that area. They issued over 11 million loans, 10 to 11 million of, of which were even approved, totaling $800 billion in funding. That's a lot of money that small businesses truly needed. But what as we're seeing, these loans um, were quote unquote eligible for forgiveness, but not all necessarily forgiven or going to be forgiven. And a lot of this information is still coming out in the wash even now. So we've got this multitude of challenges that businesses are facing in terms of a decline in revenue, not knowing how to access funding or funding not being available. And then on top of that, minority businesses being disproportionately impacted by this and then trying to get what seems a cornucopia of resources from the SBA made available, but not really knowing what that impact is going to be. So, I mean, for you being in that situation, um, seeing all this information, knowing that you needed to support your business, but not knowing where to go, how did that impact your business? What were some of those things you were kind of thinking through and trying to react to all at one time with this information coming in and still needing to manage your resources, still needing to cover contracts, respond to your customers, all the things that make a business run. Yeah, that, that's a, and those are all great points. And I, I love the uh, the numbers around that. That really shed some light in, into what was actually going on behind the scenes there. I could see how a lot of smalls were, were directly impacted, had to fold. And like, like I said, not a lot of us had that cushion. What I found 
to be the, the hardest was one juggling the cash flow, two juggling the unknowns and what to even save for. But three, how do you motivate the emergency workers that, and, and encourage the retention? And, and you know, the people were getting unemployment benefits and, and other things. Luckily, these are highly paid seasoned engineers. So they're, they're definitely going to benefit and be able to support their families more by showing up, going to work. So on the one hand, I think we're all lucky if we're able to build and be gainfully employed through a pandemic. Uh, but having been through a situation where life forced me a period of not being able to work and build, you know, my eyes were open to that. And plus the routine government shutdown scares where I'm sure Tasha, uh, you, you share some experiences there too. Those yeah. are always fun to navigate. Uh, but I tell you, not everyone recognized that blessing. And uh, on the other hand, during COVID, 95% of folks were definitely understandably scared of health concerns or anxiety. And the other five were just fearless, you know. And so we were battling to get folks back to work on-site, teleworking options assisted with some work-life balance and some of those anxieties, but it wasn't always afforded to essential workers, especially IT workers. So the good news was there were um, was a much smaller subset of folks that were asked to go on-site, and it was actually the, the key IT personnel, and that's kind of the, the field that we're in, and we were able to get our folks I'm motivated enough to to go back on site. I introduced ten dollar an hour increases with some some help with PPP funds, maintained routine award and incentive programs uh, year over year. Uh, I should mention medical benefits go up uh, fifteen to twenty percent on average from what I've seen, and um, every year we've increased our subsidies to help encourage. Uh, folks to get at least the premium band and not just the regular HMO. We also covered uh, the full dental vision for the entire family and um, maintain all their other benefits and coverage just to keep them motivated, uh, let them know we're on their side, even though I'd have to tell you, I was concerned where we're going to get some of that funding and if we would even get approved for these PPP loans. Now, I'll kind of pause there because I definitely want to get into the PPP approval process and eventually forgiveness, but uh, those are definitely big, big topic, big uh, talking points um, that we could dive into. Yep. And, and before we dive all the way into that, um, let's talk about what kind of one layer removed from that in terms of the conditions and contract considerations. Um, so you kind of talked about the, the morale and the human side of managing your employees, but let's talk for a minute because as the business owner, you're the one holding the keys to the castle and having to be responsible for contract mods and working with the government. Like, how did you navigate that process of the actual back office side that your employees don't necessarily see um, that are what allow them to keep working and 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 keeping billable and all of those things that are the logistics side that are required to run a business. Correct. While also navigating like the different requirements that are written into contracts before any of this happened, and we all know how slow sometimes it is for government and for various reasons, whether it's, you know, staffing from the contract officers and we had different people that had been sick. And so 
getting those mods in the contracts to allow for certain flexibilities and things took a while, um, depending on what agency you were at and what contracts, how your contracts were originally written. So yeah, if you could go ahead and, and just tell us about how you navigated that. That that was definitely um, a, a trying time. Uh, I was actually on the, the back in the background working with some of our partners to help frame these discussions with the CEO and, or the core. Um, a lot of times they dug into the, the contract at large to see what other provisions there were. There were disaster provisions. If the contract was fully funded, that helped a lot, right? Where we would just have to figure out if there was a clause within the contract that we could leverage for the remote work or the work from home type procedures. But then they had to build framework around that and even in the early days of of teleworking uh remote work or work from home whatever you want to call it there were guidelines in place where that said you, you had to have uh, daycare for your kids and during the pandemic i mean honestly how many families were you know sending their kids off anywhere else or had a, a nanny or a sitter there they were in the or background, open. Uh, yeah, there, there's no daycare open. Kids, even if you wanted to send them, so it, so it was a, you know, it was one of those things where everyone kind of nodded and acknowledged, and you know, you did what you had to do to to make ends meet, and it was a unspoken thing, but we we navigated it, and eventually, I think the government and contracts caught up, and that's just the nature of how these things go. I think. Um, it takes something like this to hit us and blindside us to be able to pivot and draft up these provisions, these these situations where no one would even think up, you know. So I think it was new for everyone, and luckily, the government and and a lot of the uh, commercial firms that you know were positioned in a prime were, you know, they're incentivized to get their their folks back to billable. So they're working nonstop to find ways within the contract to, to mod that. So as Tasha pointed out, it it was very heavily reliant on the availability of government staff and their willingness to be flexible and then getting all the technical POCs on the ground to agree. So it, it was a culmination of things, but everyone truly desired to get folks back to work, get livelihoods back on track so everyone was uh was on the same page in that respect uh, and you know i'm grateful that a lot of the contract stuff got sorted out either you know if not immediately then they they came up with provisions or workarounds to to get folks back to work and i'm just speaking from our experience not not everyone was that lucky and uh, even some of these sole source smaller primes uh, a lot of those provisions might not be in place. Yeah. And I think um, just for our audience, you know, in the government space, you know, how the color of money, right, makes a big, a big difference, depending on, you know, if you're, you're in D, DOD and, or you're doing in, in the Intel space, and you have a contract that is considered essential or is funded by national security funding or congressional dollars that were all, already obligated versus you know, a quasi-government agency that may be retail-based versus R&D funding, you know, there's different types of money. And depending on your contract structure and that color of money, that does have a huge impact on 
had a huge impact during this time on the businesses. And, you know, that plays into thinking long-term about how you diversify your contract portfolio. I think a lot of companies learn those lessons. What would you say are some, are some early, because we're going to get into more lessons learned towards the end of our talk, but what was some of the early lessons that you learned just from that early period, Soka? Just one or two things would be useful, I think, for the audience. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty for sure. I, I always thought that we could rely on uh, our accounts receivables alone, um, which were starting to come in and, and offer that padding and, and not have to go after so, some SBAs or other lending avenues. I think going into GovCon, you, you've got to come in knowing that it, it, you, there are a lot of financial hurdles and, and blockers and you, you'll need some runway for business development. I think in growing organically and, you know, really picking and choosing who and what uh, contracts we were working on and um, growing just a few at a time, we thought we were safe, right? We weren't winning 10, 20 uh, slot contracts every other month and having to go out and staff and find funding. So we we didn't think we were overstretched, but in reality, uh, just about everyone um, in GovCon, if you were starting off within the first five years, you're already behind the eight ball in terms of capital. So coming in with some kind of investment strategy or and having uh, cash flow in hand from an SBA or, or or anything like that, longer term loans would help position you and in, in these tough times like that are unprecedented but unexpected. Nevertheless, and um, I think that was the biggest lesson learned that we were not well positioned financially to support that blow, mm. and uh, we were heavily reliant on our primes at that point. Yeah, um, and. Yeah. I can imagine. I want I want to go ahead and get us to pivot towards um more about the funding and how what you actually did to to secure, you know, your employees and keep your business going. Uh there are several tools and funding options offered during the time. Um grants, loans, deferrals, you know, the the EIDL, the economic impact disaster loan, uh which provided the fixed low rate, you know, and deferred payback on it, as well as the PPP, the Paycheck uh, Protection Program, among other things. Did you pursue any of, any of these for your, for your business? Did. Yeah, it's a great point. We definitely pursued the EIDL. The grant was eventually approved, and that was the, the smaller $10,000 grant. Uh, the larger loan was also, the, it was structured almost like a, a regular SBA loan underwriting. So it's pretty pretty stringent. So if you had any loss in previous years, where most businesses do starting off, I think one of our years was a little um, a little down um, as we were starting to onboard, that automatically excluded us. Other things to consider were like higher uh, credit scores. So if you're a small business owner getting started, you've probably strapped and, and tapped all of your, your savings, your credit cards, and everything else on the personal side, as well as, you know, maybe taking out some loans like short-term or merchant cash advances, which are, are based on account receivables. Um, those could impact your ability to secure one of those lower cost loans like that EIDL. So we were really uh, 
strapped for options, right? The the only things that were available to us were those uh, more risky um, merchant cash advance type loans where there were lending based on uh, account receivables or the promise of future work and receivables. So that was that was kind of where we were left until the PPP finally got enacted, showed up, and uh, the application guidelines were starting to get drafted. I know we're, we'll segue into that, and, and that's definitely something I don't know if you want to tee up any yeah. facts around that, but that was that was yeah. a, a scary it was, process. It was a scary process. I considered taking the PPP myself, but I didn't think the application process was very clear. Um, I talked to both of my advisors. I I talked to some of the free resources that the government have with, you know, with the PTAC and even my score advisor multiple changes and guidance kept coming out and it made me hesitate even more because I wasn't really sure like what direction to go in. And for me, I had fortunately not decided to scale at the time. So it was just me. And so I, I was, I could cover myself with, with the savings that I had, but how about you? Like, tell us more about your experience with that application process and, and kind of like what happened. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest stressor I think I had was uh, the livelihoods of the employees that were, you know, they were emailing, calling me every day and I had to, you know, put on a smile and tell them everything's going to be all right. Uh, not re really knowing what we were doing. We had five irons in the pot uh, or in, in the fire, but we, uh, we didn't know where the funds were going to come from, to be honest, but we, we did what every uh, bank and we did what the SBA and the treasury were advising was apply to multiple banks at the same time. Uh, SBA would only approve one loan. So that was direction that came straight from SBA and the lenders. So the first thing I did was take uh, work with our payroll company as well as our bookkeeping to get all of our ducks in a row. Luckily, we did have some employees and past tax filings to to show the earnings and the payroll at at different levels right because they required the previous year's uh, returns there so that we had all the requirements in order we you know the application process as you mentioned was very fluid different requirements were added taken off or modified throughout the process so we were working closely with our lenders and um, folks in underwriting to kind of package it all but at the end of the day, you know, applying to multiple lenders, I, I think I even tapped FinSec type programs. You package all this with all the requirements listed and it's one common application. So they're identical. You upload it to their portal or send it to their underwriting in the zip. And, you know, it's on them to submit your application through SBA's portal. I think it was called eTran. And if SBA accepts or kicks back a loan number, you're basically in. That's what initiates the process. And then you can proceed with, with that on the back end. All that happens behind the scenes. The small businesses that are applying have no insight into that. Um, so we put the applications out there. Sure enough, the first round came and went within, I think, a week. They dried up funds. And that's where you, you heard a lot of uh, other mid-sized or larger companies really take advantage of the PPP and getting uh, multi-million dollar loans, which didn't make sense to anyone, right? They're supposed to be capped. 
but they had multiple sites or however they stacked their application, they were able to get things approved. That hurt small businesses like us. And I actually wrote an article or wrote some letters to um, some congressmen to address those concerns. At the same time, luckily, they were already working for a second refresh of that PPP1. That said, in April, late April, I think we got a letter from a bank that we already had a relationship with, and they said we were approved for funding. Um, so we, we got that uh, secured. And again, since we applied with, with them for EIDL, traditional loans, as well as PPP, um, I couldn't tell you where the funds were coming from outright, but you know, I trusted that I needed to sign this right away. I was working on site full time. A lot of this work you're doing nights and weekends and uh, running out to lunch or your your car on your phone. So you're trying to read DocuSigns and do everything on your phone when they're it's not easy. So I I get that done. I think we're good. And that did give us additional runway, right? So uh, it took a lot of stress off and we were able to ensure that we could run payroll the next three to to six months, right? That said, May comes along and I get a letter from another lender, uh, a larger bank that, you know, we had uploaded the same application to, and they said that we were approved for funding. And, you know, once... you submit it to portals all electronically signed and approved by small business in advance, you get funded, it shows up in your account. Then you're scrambling to figure out what it is. So I found myself emailing multiple places and uh, I finally got one response and it calling before you could get to anyone on like a live person. It was, it was hard, but on every account, uh, I was told by the second bank, oh, okay, this is legit. We've cross-referenced it, verified it's a legitimate loan from SBA approved for PVP. Just use the funds. We didn't know if it was because of the increase to 24 weeks and that criteria. And again, we didn't know if the EIDL stuff played into it. We were just taking the, the bank's advice to say, okay, as long as we use this towards PPP allowable, expenses like payroll, uh, utilities, and rent were covered. So that's where, you know, we started thinking uh, creatively and thinking about our employees more and more. And I floated two or three people that were asked to leave or not bill. I floated folks that were in transition uh, to give them some runway because they were actually cut out of the position. And then we gave those incentives to, to offer up basically hazard pay for individuals that were showing up the bill to give them extra incentive because they they were shouldering a lot of the, the effort. Mm-hmm. And I, I was one of them, you know, I was asked to go on site and uh, I took it on the chin because every dollar I bring in billable uh, covers some overhead and other expenses for the business. So it was kind of one of those things that you, you, uh, you got to do as a small business owner, you got to find every which way to get additional revenue and to support your, your cash flow. And I know in yours, in your case, it was, it was extra, um, I think stressful, not only for you, but your family, because you had not too long made it past a very serious health scare. And you were, 
high risk, like truly high risk, um, still going on site and doing a lot of this. So I certainly, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, That was certainly on the back of my mind, but I I tried to play it off and not, not worry my wife so much, but yeah, that was definitely something to consider. You know, we were, we had little one to worry about uh, a baby at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, lots of, lots of unknowns and lots of worries there. The application process alone was was so confusing for all parties involved. Going back to that that question, we we just didn't know how we got the second round of funding. But doing the math, uh, if you just on the back of a napkin, based on the allowable forgiveness uh, requirements and all that, if they extended it to a, uh, the longer duration for 24 weeks, then it kind of, it almost married up for what we were asking. And at, at the end of the day, within that 24 week period, payroll alone actually did cover the 24 week period. We did burn uh, with payroll alone, the same amount of money that was borrowed against bank number one and bank number two. So that became even more confusing, right? Mm-hmm. So you had kind of a black box scenario where you put a lot of information in and eventually something came back out. You had a a number of different sources of information with it mixed certainty on what was correct in terms of forgiveness or not, who was providing the loan, where it was coming from, what were you allowed to use it for, Um, a number of different data sources, a lot of different information. At that time, I don't think much of it being terribly concrete for a small business, especially those that were in the billable role, as well as managing employees, as well as working with customers and keeping all the lights on. So we've had this kind of perfect storm brewing (laughs) during during COVID, during the pandemic, on top of all of that. Um, And while obviously the intent of the PPP loans were to help small businesses, as we've seen kind of the aftermath that is going on as a result of some of the audits to the Small Business Administration's loans and some of the paperwork and activities that went on with the banks um, seems to be raising a lot of eyebrows. Um, A number of different agencies have kind of launched into a number of different audits because there there has been some evidence that the funds were used inappropriately, but as we're seeing, the audits and the evaluations have been kind of a blanket approach. So everybody is being evaluated, whether you're a five-person five small business or you know a 500-person small business or even a small business that's graduated to large, but maybe, as we all know, still qualifies as a small business due to some extenuating circumstances or contracts you're running out. So there's a number of situations a lot of different information, a lot going on now and then, and a lot going on now as well in terms of how the government's moving forward with determining whether or not those funds were used appropriately and whether or not they were even issued appropriately and what the terms of forgiveness are going to be or should have been in the narrative as it was originally put forth um, to those applying for the loans. So now we're, we're here at 2023. Now what? Now what are we doing? How are we moving forward. So what does that look for? What's on the horizon for Zen Solutions? You've, you've, you're here, you're still here. So you're on the upside. A lot of businesses didn't make it. Um, so you're, you're here to, and continuing to perform services for the government. But what are you kind of in recovery mode from? What are you still putting the pieces together around 
and, and trying to deal with and navigate regarding the loans and the finances and continuing to keep your business running as we roll into, you know, the next year. Yes, thank you for that. Um, we, we definitely found ourselves juggling quite a bit or, or reeling uh, around the 2021 uh, timeframe where, you know, the forgiveness uh, process started and, um, you know, we started to at least put in our forgiveness packet for the first loan, which, you know, doing our reading and research ourselves, that second loan more and more was looking like it was a, potentially a duplicate, but it wasn't, um, you know, SBA was supposed to reach out to all the, the banks and the small businesses uh, affected and give them direction and uh, guidance on how to return it. I remember that. Yep. And the, that that came out even late 2020, and we, we never got that notice. And I actually finally was able to get into the branch office of, of that larger bank and um, had someone phys physically tell me that, oh, you're good. Yeah, just wait till the forgiveness window and uh, put that application in. But I still wasn't confident. And so we never pulled the trigger on that second one. Uh, come to find midway through 2021, I, I believe, you know, someone had, you know, there, there are a few people out there looking to make uh, either a name for themselves or an, uh, some extra cash or whatever, but there were key TAM claims made uh, against a lot of businesses that were uh, showing up with duplicates in the SBA database. Some people had early access or privileged access to that database early and uh, kick those kind of whistleblower things and, and gets kicked up to the government to investigate. So we actually get a letter asking uh, for details around this duplicate loan. And we're like, you know, that we had to pause and, and figure out what was going on there and, you know, reach out to some lawyers to explain our situation and provide them whatever we could. At the very same time, we get a letter from our first bank who had been trying to process the forgiveness for the last six to eight months. They're like, I think we figured it out. We saw um, a letter from SBA saying the EIN didn't match. And so the application packet that we submitted had the correct uh, EIN number um, for whatever reason when they entered it into ETRAN, they transposed it. SBA had a different EIN and record of it. So it was uh, technically a, a unique loan. Um, so both banks were technically correct. And, you know, SBA also, their their portal didn't pick up on it. There was no QA. So they didn't identify the the incorrect EIN, I should say. I think they were sweeping for duplicates, but ours was just that small pocket of nuances or, or anomalies that they just didn't account for. So we got swept up in a much larger uh, sweep of, uh, like you're saying, they're just casting a large net, trying to go after bad actors that were knowingly applying for duplicate loans. Ours was actually a transcription error made by the bank. So within their, their system, there are actually two unique EINs, one a transcription error by the first bank. Um, this made the forgiveness process very confusing. So it held up that first bank's forgiveness while the government's 
on the other end questioning and, and threatening, right? Uh, so we we had to come up with a way to uh, explain our situation, come up with a settlement to say, hey, we're we're only going to ask for forgiveness on the first one. We'll settle up with the second loan, and uh, we start that process. And uh, the government has been very gracious and and worked with us to come up with terms to settle that. And in return, they were going to you know interface with SBA and let them know there was the EIN transcription error to fix it, so that we had the opportunity to even apply for forgiveness correctly in the on the first loan. That said, fast forward to early 2022, uh, we finally get everything settled formally with the government. We think that's the end of it. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, the uh, that settlement alone and the act of correcting the first EIN actually triggered a duplicate within the SBA system, which starts off another chain of events that just looks like a lot of, um, you know, foul play and a lot of flags are thrown. And, you know, the left hand's not talking to the right hand. I don't know if anyone looked to see if there's already a settlement in place that that brought it all together, but it caused a lot of confusions. There were downstream unintended consequences from that. And ironically, in formally settling the PPP matter with the government um, and you know, the government encouraging SBA to to fix the transcription errors that that initiated possibly other checks and unintended consequences of uh, possible suitability concerns, a financial and clearance review, which part of the reason why we even signed in the first place was there was going to be no disbarment, no uh, loss of my clearance so that I can continue working. Um, all this was done to protect our business, our livelihoods. Um, the financial and clearance reviews yielded in no ill will, no civil nor criminal intent, just like the settlement said as well. But no one reads the fine print. And the long and short of that is it opened up opportunities for other people that you know were opportunistic to create an opportunity for them to see a, a small business in a very vulnerable state um, as they're going through this review, not even a day after, I'm told that I won't have uh, the contract that I was on um, and the resources that I had on that contract were not going to have the, the liberty to um, stay on the contract as a sub. And so it was an opportunity to, to basically absorb or, or poach like four of our, four of our resources, you know that drastically hit us in the gut. And again, it was not nothing that we could have ever foreseen. Uh, we thought the settlement was going to, you know, clear all this up. And at the end, it, it actually caused a lot of other questions and raised other process concerns. It just goes to show that the process still is being flushed out. Even the, with the SBA, they outright denied the first PPP forgiveness based on the portal having two uh, identical uh, EINs now. Um, and we had to go through an appeals process and I had to write to Congress, uh, congressmen, I had to write to senators and, and get folks on board to to read our, our story and, um, you know, 
and inquire with SBA and have them really take a look at this. And as of early this year, finally, we finally got forgiven on the PPP one on the first loan. Wow. And and I think what I am hearing, if you guys aren't hearing, all of this, it, it's not inconsequential, the amount of coordination that has to happen to just get different bodies to actually pay attention and not pass this along like, oh, it's not, you know, I, I have this one piece of this process for this company and what I see is this and this is what it is. He literally had to, what I'm hearing, Soka, is pay all like a ton of money, obviously for attorney fees. Yeah. And then there's the cost of your time and having to navigate all of these organizations and you still need to bring in money for your family and you still have to make payroll for the remaining employees that you have and ensure continuity for them. How did you manage all of that? And I tell you, it was, it was a stressful few years. Like it has not gotten any easier. You know, I look back and I say, well, 2020 was a bear. 2021, 2022 were just equally as, as tough for us as a small business because we had this looming um, cloud, uh, so to speak, over our heads. We didn't knowingly do anything wrong or with ill intent. We, our only intent was to keep the lights on and, and provide for these families and employees and do whatever we could to keep the business going. At the same time, we had to come up with funds to pay for those legal liabilities. We had to figure out how to you know, settle any kind of penalties with the settlement, uh, settle the, the debt with the second loan. So now as of early 2023, we're, we're still taking a look at, okay, we were in a really great position pre-pandemic, got hit with that, uh, had to go through the PPP process that provided some influx to really take care of everyone. And now uh, fast forward to 2023, we're stuck with um, half of that as debt to try to get off of our books. So it caused a lot of ripple effects of having to go and get very expensive short-term lending is now the SPA loans are not available to you because of these questions on the back end with our uh, PPP situation. The EIDL um, that you know we, we thought we were gonna get uh, to apply for and that was also part of the reason why we settled was that program was uh, released and the the thought that was that we would be able to apply for that up to 500,000 and help reconsolidate all that debt that got flagged and uh, you know I'm sure applying for that loan might have sent other alarms <laughs> that hey look at this small business trying to apply for yet another loan and they've got this PPP matter and the, the possible duplicates. So who's to say that, you know, and, and just trying to navigate the system uh, correctly and by the book that we weren't tripping wires unknowingly just because uh, the backend process wasn't set up to account for those anomalies or um, at least give pause or um, provide comments or, or something or, there's no feedback loop to the small business, right? It's just an outright denial. And 
and then they send it up to whoever they send it up to if they think that it's um you know a red flag and, and that's that in turn causes a lot of financial uh duress and uh liability on the legal side to defend themselves where you know it, it could have probably been sorted out if someone just picked up the phone from that agency and really tried to dig into to what's going on and i get it it's a resource issue but it's also a very big uh glaring process issue and lots of lots of unknowns we just don't know where, where things are getting missed yeah and with so many of these things being unknowns i mean there was no way to predict that this is how this is going to all unfold for you but yeah. i am sure kind of as you alluded to already some of your lessons learned in some in terms of being able to put aside revenue to cover you for three to six months or, or, or even further beyond that now having been through so many years of challenging situations and, and dealing with a situation that you didn't even know would be created by way of following just what instructions you had um, what are some other kind of lessons learned or ultimate kind of takeaways you have from the experience I mean you're still here you're yeah. still still running your company so some you're doing something right um despite the challenges that you're facing so what are some of those kind of lessons learned or, or takeaways that you're kind of also yeah. keeping inspired to keep going right I mean, there, there are definitely periods where you you're down on the ground and you, you just wonder why you're you know you're you're still around and you want to throw your hands up but with most small businesses we've put our life savings our families you know assets on the table to to make this work so that wasn't even an option of, of folding right so one of the biggest takeaways from that whole ordeal with the ppp and the forgiveness and uh, the settlement matter was to uh, advocate for yourself and let your truth be heard get your story out and get your truth out until you know, someone's willing to, to listen, whether it's a legal counsel or uh, any advocates on the congressional side to, to get the matter looked at deeper and, and resolved so that you can put this behind you. Uh, we had to go through a lot of different attorneys, different possible points of contacts in, in government to try to get our, our story heard and get things resolved. And I think they are coming together and um, even... Uh, the government who who we settled with is help, trying to help and ease the the strain, right? Because of the unforeseen stress financially with lost receivables that we actually had short-term lenders giving us money for based on future receivables. You know, we thought we were good for another two years or, or at least another year to recoup that and cover that. Now we're left with a hold in the bag and we've lost four full-time resources and billables for the, you know, the duration of the year. How do we navigate that? So one of the biggest lessons learned was first surround yourself with supportive life and business coaches. I can't tell you enough. I thought I was going to walk away so many times and just have to fold. You know, I don't want to throw out the B word because that's, that's never a, an option uh, or the last option you want to um, pursue is bankruptcy. But the uh, ability to constantly adapt and let obstacles strengthen your resolve, it's, it's one of the things that I've always 
try to live by. And I'd, I'd like to pass that to my children one day. And luckily I've, I've seen the resolve and seen that with my, my family and my, my parents. So I think that uh, kind of set the stage and going through the life and health scare, it also, you know, helped me, uh, help to reassure me that we've been through tougher times. Um, and again, I'm advocating and fighting for my employees. So I need to find ways to get the funding. Merchant cash advances and short-term lending is typically the, the quickest way to get funded, but those are usually based on accounts receivable. So when there's an unforeseen dip in AR, then you need to really reassess. So I would say one thing we learned was to take closer looks at the SBA, tap local CDC offerings and resources. I think uh, Tasha has a lot of great resources and, and um, options there to, to throw out to the listeners and try to consolidate the expensive debt first, obviously, and, and try to get profitable because GovCon can be very sustainable and lucrative and can entice and bring in uh, investors. And that's ultimately uh, probably the best way to get additional cash flow and some peace of mind. Well, lots of people don't like to hear, you know, that they need to carve up any of their equity. Um, but I think offering employees and, and business consultants and valuable resources, sweat equity, and, um, folks that are going to offer financial financial solvency through investments, um, that's always probably a, a good first step if you have friends or family that are willing to help you and help to put some money up front and invest, that, that always helps. Those are some amazing lessons learned. Um, and I, I know that, you know, re recovering and transitioning from all of those hits it has to be like eye-opening, I think. I mean, your story is amazing. And it's crazy how with all of the benefits that exist in the government contracting space, all of the pitfalls that could happen. And these are not, these are, it's new territory in this instance with the pandemic and this, these new processes. I think one consistent though, or constant is that in government, oftentimes there are, there's not enough funding provided to support programs that are put in place and policies also tend to follow the decision, which it should precede so that you get the funding and the support um, and you don't have some of these situations. So I want to wrap us up and get into like what's next, you know, reassessing and driving business growth, trying to make sure you have trusted partners uh, so you don't have, uh, you know, opportunistic people coming in and sucking up your employees that is obviously something that's really important. So what's next for you? And and, and are there any um, any angels out there that you like to give thanks to that helped you through this? Yeah, we certainly wanted to, uh, you know, have a positive spin on, on this whole ordeal. There's a lot of great positive lessons learned. We know who our, our reliable business partners are now. We are gravitating towards other small and mid-sized businesses that know the struggle and are willing to team. I, I would like to definitely acknowledge a, a few small businesses that have, have been through it with me uh, over the last year with 2039 and T-Secure and Site Deploy. There's some mid-sizes out there. Um, uh, Paradigm e ECS that 
have, have stood by us and um and many others that are that I know I, I'm I'm forgetting and, and not that they're <laughs> they're not at the top of my mind. We've definitely spent a lot of time with the BD efforts along the way, but there's just been so much activity in, in that front. So I'd have to say uh, one of the biggest things that you learn in this field where you are wearing many hats is you, you spend half of your time doing business uh, development, trying to get proposals out, trying to get feelers out, building those relationships. But again, targeting like-minded small or mid-sized businesses with uh, the willingness to carve up some of that work share up front is, is vital. Um, there, there's a lot of great companies out there that I, I know and trust, and I, I think we'll continue to do uh, small business right. We are also working with uh, business consultants to help us uh, clean up finances, negotiate down debt. Um, that's something to look into if you've got a lot of short-term debt to figure out how to chip away at th that. Because if you can't pay your employees, you know there's no company to even settle these liabilities downstream. So it's in everyone's best interest to try to come up with creative ways to um, uh, knock out the liabilities and make yourself more profitable. Again, we talked about focus on potentially raising private investment if, if that's an option or something you want to consider. Yeah, we, we've got a ton of proposals and teaming efforts in the pipeline. We're just you know targeting the right fit for small sole source type opportunities, things where our past performance sets us apart with e-discovery, information governance, records management, data analytics, network and cloud and hybrid infrastructure. Those are all things right up our alley where we can offer a lot of uh, value past performance where we've become the trusted advisor and go-to engineers. As we showed through the pandemic, you know, most, 70% of our folks were deemed essential. That's a pretty good number based on the the, the numbers that Yas was um, sharing with us earlier. So looking for ways to build additional revenue streams is something else that businesses should consider, you know, whether it's building a product or aligning through channel partnerships and offering services that way, just to give yourself uh, another opportunity or you know some some cushion for three to six months in the works we're, we're looking to apply for the 8a uh, sba program uh, we're drafting gsa schedules and um, seeking teaming partners for those larger vehicles and just keeping our eyes focused on the the longer term goals like why do we get into this what's the end game i think Every small business owner should have an exit strategy, right? So as you grow, you're, you're going to get to that. Um, you're going to eventually outgrow that small business size limit. Mid-sizes are probably going to be <laughs> knocking on your door well before that or right at that moment, right? So uh, there's a lot of incentive for um, mids to team up with smalls to go after government contracts. And especially if you have different types of qualifications. I know, Tasha, you have a, a ton on, on your end and, you know, we have to leverage what we can on ours, whether it's the 8A or um, other avenues. But at some point, we have to know what that line in the sand is going to be. And 
with small businesses, just just like every other small business owner, their priorities, I'm sure, family, employees, and and all that. Um, I want to take it a step further, uh, knowing the the years lost in our <laughs> in our health and lives <laughs> with all this. If we have a a viable exit, I want to be able to take care of everyone that's invested there their time, their patience, and their their loyalty along the way and their optimism with the employees that are stuck it out. Um, I want to make sure they get some life-changing returns so that they're set and we can recoup and eventually do something less stressful like a coffee shop on the beach or you know, <laughs> a yoga, yeah, yoga <laughs> studio. Oh my God. There's you so made, yeah, I smile. <laughs> She's uh. like, you speak in my language. <laughs> Absolutely. So with all of those, those amazing things, Soka, we we want to get to an ultimate takeaway and we're gonna we're gonna call it a day. What would you say is the ultimate takeaway from your experience? From my personal experience, uh, I try to tell myself, stay strong, stay focused, keep the whys in mind while you got into it, and adapt as you tackle all the woes, you know, whether it be cash flow issues or God forbid another pandemic, um, but <laughs> whatever the case may be, you got to be prepared and be able to adapt and and just keep your chin up. And again, if it w- wasn't for supportive friends and family and colleagues along the way, I think it would have been a different kind of discussion, and we'd be on the other end of the uh, the numbers here. Yes, I, I think um, we're lucky to still be around, and we we hope to maintain and keep the course thank you both thank you tasha thank you guys for uh paying it forward yourself and and getting people's messages out and small businesses are are definitely uh, indebted to you guys to to continue this pursuit yep and we appreciate you um we'd like to specifically thank you for joining us on unveiled uh our govcon stories presented to you by high 39 media production and our, our special guests for today, Soka of Zen Solutions. And um, we wanna encourage everyone to take the time, share these posts, share the links, subscribe for upcoming content. And we appreciate you joining us today for this conversation. Thank you so much. 